Well, ladies and gentlemen, once again, this is the EMS, the internationally recognized Inside EMS podcast. And this episode of Inside EMS podcast is sponsored by Boundary Medical. Learn how Boundary can help you save minutes and lives at Boundary.com. And here is my friend, my good friend, someone that uh, I would loan money to, Kelly Grayson. KG, how are you doing? Well, that's that's news. Uh, let me hit you up after we're through recording. <laughs> no, I didn't say how much money I would loan. Oh, okay. yeah. So I got don't. You. I- and and i think the secret to loaning money is this and this is what i've learned over my years i'll loan money to people with the intent that i'll never see the money again yeah because if that's that's i think what ruins uh friendships is sometimes when you borrow money and i'm probably saying this and all my friends are going to hit me up for some money but um you know that the intent is you know what if i've got it and i'm going to give it away uh to somebody who's in need just plan on never seeing it again, and you don't ever have to worry about it. Yeah, it's one of those. If if two hundred dollars is what it took to, to get you to go away and me never hear from you again, that's probably worth it. <laughs> I don't know that that's exactly what I meant, Kelly. But uh, you have a way. I mean, you have a way of just putting words into uh, you know, just making them very inspirational. As a matter of fact, that's what we're going to talk about today: is your inspiring words. You know, Kelly, is uh, there's been no secret as to what's going on in the news when we talk about all yeah. the cities and, you know, the and you and I have tried very hard to stay away from things that are political or hotbed topics, and we've kind of talked around them, but everybody knows what's going on up there in Minnesota, and, uh, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, our own feelings about that, as well as what's happening around the United States. We hope that those things kind of resolve themselves, but you wrote an article and I thought it was, uh, I read it yesterday, and uh, I do want to talk to you about some of the words that you use because it's, uh, you know, you're, I think you're, you, you know, you swallowed the Webster's Dictionary. Um, but, you know, you talk about asphyxia. And, yeah. you know, I think that in this horrible event that's happened in um, Minnesota, you know, the, the, the word asphyxia has been on the lips of a lot of people. And you really kind of break down what is asphyxia, what is traumatic asphyxia, and then you even talk about strangulation. And I think that this is timely for us to know, because I think we've all been on those calls where we've had uh, a potential murder scene, uh, where somebody has been strangled. Uh, We've probably seen the MVAs where there's been traumatic asphyxia, and we've kind of seen how those patients present. But I think that this is a timely article that gives us kind of some background about asphyxia and what it truly means. Uh And, you know, I think the the first thing that you say, you know, in your subtitle is understanding the sequelae of traumatic asphyxia, strangulation, and positional asphyxia. Uh And the name of your article is Asphyxia by Any Other Name is Just as Deadly. And, and, And just from that title, what were you trying to get across? Well... There were a number of people on on social media who were posting snippets and out of uh, out of context screenshots from the medical examiner's preliminary report in George Floyd's death, and and the thing that they they highlighted was um, uh, the medical examiner found no signs of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation, no physical findings of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation, and they post that sort of thing. As as justification or or as as uh, yeah, but um, uh, look all these all these people looting and rioting for no reason. The guy wasn't even asphyxiated, 
and and they don't understand that those are very technical terms and they have a specific meaning. And uh, you know, I, I I posted a meme and said, "You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means." So I, I endeavored to explain the difference to lay people uh, uh, between the positional asphyxia and and uh, traumatic asphyxia and strangulation. Because uh, it's quite likely, as a matter of fact, it's been pretty much uh, confirmed that uh, George Floyd died of positional asphyxia. Yeah, and I think that, the uh, you know, again, when we start to think about these patients and how they're presenting, you know, and I think that you make a really good distinction in your article as well, where you talk about the difference between an, a, uh, a AAA and an aortic dissection. A lot yeah. of people, and, and you say that very well, that... People uh-huh. mistakenly use the terms interchangeably, but they're two totally different things. Very different. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so now when we start to think about it, you, you start off with respiratory distress and impairment. Give us a little bit about that paragraph. Well, you know, um, you know, you see this all, all the time, and it's even repeated in medical circles, and it shouldn't be. Uh, you hear the, the, the jaded and the cynical say, if you can tell me you... I can't breathe. You're breathing. Uh, well, no, that's not really true. And and that kind of crap uh, posted in, in medical forums is unexcusable. Uh, posted in lay people forums, as those of us with medical training, uh, need to dispel that myth and dispute that myth whenever possible. Because uh, when someone says, I can't breathe, uh, that only means that their vocal cords are clear and that they can phonate. There is no mechanical or, or anatomical obstruction of their vocal cords and air and uh, vibration can pass through them. That's all it means. Uh, I, you've probably had plenty of asthmatic patients just before they crash who told you, I can't breathe. Um, you've probably had many CHFers and, and so on and so forth who told you, I can't breathe. And you darn well better listen to them, try to rule out any yeah. reversible cause for that, for that issue. Um, now, we've also had our panicky patients and our hyperventilation syndrome patients and our patients with anxiety attacks who, who tell you in all seriousness, I can't breathe when a physical examination and a little diagnostic uh, studies show that they're breathing just fine. It's psychological. But that's well, not a distinction that many lay people, uh, including police officers, are qualified to make. Let me um, let me let me interject here because yeah. I think that you know I think that one of the things that we know as EMS providers is the you know you hear the term I can't breathe. Well, if you're if you're saying that if you're talking, you can breathe. The lay person doesn't understand. I'm having difficulty breathing exactly. with the term I can't breathe. Right now, in a, in a normal person, they're breathing and they're having fun. But when you have a CHF patient who says, I can't breathe, and they're talking, or you have an asthmatic patient, as you said, I mean, I've, I've in, and there's nothing scarier to me when an asthmatic is saying, I can't breathe, and then the next thing they know, they're on the floor passed out. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, two things uh, I want to add to yours. When people say they can't breathe, take them serious. But when they also say, I'm going to die take them serious as well. Cause I had somebody say that to me one time and they freaking died. Oh, uh, definitely. But anyway, so I just want to add that. So the, the term by the lay person, I can't breathe really equates to I'm having difficulty breathing. Mm-hmm. And you better listen to it. You ignore that. 
at your own peril and at your patient's peril. Uh, and, and as George Floyd and Eric Garner and others have proved, um, when your patient says, I can't breathe, you darn well better take them seriously. Um, and, and whenever people use that phrase, we need to dispel it. Uh, it it's our job uh, as advocates for our patients and advocates for our profession to, to bust the myths so that, that uh, um, the, the, the fake news and the false news doesn't propagate out there if it's easily disputed. Yeah, I agree. So then you kind of get into the, you know, you kind of now transition into traumatic asphyxia, strangulation and and positional Uh asphyxia. You know, I think traumatic asphyxia is something that if you've not seen in your EMS career, uh, you will see. It used to be back in the old days before electricity that we would see a lot of traumatic asphyxia, especially an MVA. And the reason is because the, the cars weren't as secure as they are now. I mean, Kelly, if you think in your 30-some-odd EMS career, how many MVAs you've seen where the seat has been pushed up against the steering wheel and it's now caught the, uh, you know, the patient in between the seat and the steering uh-huh. wheel... And when you show up on scene, you've got a very, very um, identifiable um, mm-hmm. uh, patient uh, presentation. But give us a little bit about this traumatic asphyxia. Yeah, they, they, they have that death hood thing. Uh, one vividly stands out. I'm a man pinned between uh, the steering wheel and the seat back of, a, of an El Camino uh, and, and just that sort of thing. Traumatic asphyxia is a cardio vascular event. It doesn't have anything to do with your breathing, although there may be a, a respiratory component to uh, uh, in the mechanism, but it's a cardiovascular event. It results from a sudden spike in intrathoracic pressure, and usually this happens uh, in, in uh, uh, it requires a valsalva maneuver. The patient has to try to exhale to close glottis, um, uh, and when the force simultaneously is applied to your chest, uh, you get this tremendous amount of back pressure. Uh, your intrathoracic pressure spikes. It causes uh, it causes back flow uh, through the venous circulation. Um, the heart is compressed. Uh, uh, blood backs up in in your jugular veins, your pulmonary vasculature um, uh, backs up into your superior uh, 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 vascular system, and as a result. Uh, those veins in your shoulders, head, neck, face, uh, all engorge and, and quite a few of them rupture. Well, what's characteristic of it is that purplish engorged uh, protruding tongue and, and the eyeballs bulging out and that purplish mottled discoloration uh, to the uh, upper shoulders and the, the head and face. Um, and uh, microscopically, there will be petechiae and conjunctival hemorrhage and, and all that sort of thing from those microvessels. Uh, engorging and bursting. It's a cardiovascular event. It, it has nothing to do with your breathing. Now, if you saw it coming and you you did that valve salve maneuver and you tried to exhale against a closed glottis when the force was applied, maybe uh, you also suffer a myocardial contusion and pulmonary contusions as well, and maybe even rupture both lungs in that old paper bag syndrome that we were uh, we were taught. Um, but it's not a respiratory issue. It's a cardiovascular issue. And, and the prognosis for those people is pretty darn dire. And when the medical examiner says, I saw no signs of traumatic asphyxia uh, in, in the autopsy, well, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about no signs of vascular engorgement and, and 
and that sort of thing. And it stands to reason it wouldn't be there because that's not the kind of force that was applied. Same thing for strangulation. Uh, you know, I think that this is really great stuff, and uh, I, I, I think we've got a couple more things that we want to talk about. But before we do that, as your partner in EMS for over 40 years, Bountry has made it their goal to provide you with more than just emergency medical supplies and equipment. Bountry partners with you to create efficiencies within your agency, streamline your operations, and help you find ways to make the most out of your budget. Your dedicated account manager will be your true partner, acting as your personal advisor, to help you determine which solution is right for you and your specific needs. To find out more or to set up a new account, visit Bountree.com or call 800-533-0523. So, you know, Kelly, I think you've done a great job of kind of laying this out for us as we've uh, gotten, uh, you know, in this first part. And we kind of finished up with that traumatic asphyxia as a cardiovascular phenomenon and not a respiratory one, which I think is very important and when the medical examiner says no signs of traumatic asphyxia, we could all agree that there's no signs of traumatic asphyxia. Uh-huh. But let's talk about positional asphyxia. Yeah. Give us a little bit about that. Well, positional asphyxia or, or restraint asphyxia results from, from prone positioning, usually, uh, and often uh, exacerbated by someone putting force on a patient's back, neck, or shoulders to hold them down. Uh, this has been well-documented throughout the medical literature and, and in many, many case reports. Um, uh, it, it is scientifically proven. Uh, talk, talking about, now, you know, we've recently, we've been talking about proning of patients in COVID-19, uh, but that's a different thing uh, to, to help with alveolar recruitment. And these people are being mechanically ventilated anyway. Uh, and it's not, you, you prone someone in, with COVID-19 and, and, and there's a very specific pro protocol to do this, but when you prone restrain someone, um, first of all, lying flat on your belly, particularly if you're a large or obese person or you got a big old beer belly, you can't breathe. You can't breathe effectively. And then if you augment that by putting your knee and all your weight on someone's neck or shoulder and pressing their face into the ground, um, you may not be crushing their chest, but you are prohibiting full expansion of their chest. And that's what positional asphyxia is. Um, even if they are relatively healthy, and there have been healthy people killed this way, uh, if you've got a patient who is actively struggling, um, you can exacerbate the problem even more. And if the patient has underlying conditions, comorbidities like hypertension and heart disease and asthma, all of these things are made worse by interfering with the expansion of the patient's chest. Um, Chris, how do they tell us to transport people to the hospital in the position to breathe the best? Semi-fowlers. Right, right. And sit them up and allow for maximum expansion of their chest. Um, But when you put someone down and you are kneeling on top of them and their hands are cuffed behind their back and often their face is pressed against the pavement uh, and you, you deny them the use of their legs to try to roll over and position themselves and do it hobble or strain, all of the patient's weight, all of the patient's weight, if they're hobbled, uh, is on their chest. And you add your weight to it, and they just can't breathe. And you wind up with hypoxia and, and, and hypercapnia and, and respiratory acidosis. If you add uh, an actively struggling patient to the mix, you've got a patient with with metabolic acidosis and rhabdomyolysis and possibly even DIC, I've seen, um, and that sort of thing. And and the 
end result is a patient on an express train to death. Uh, and if we don't do something about that, uh, that train is going to reach a station. And, and usually by the time a patient expires, uh, they're pretty much unresuscitatable at that right. point. Yeah. If we can intervene before then and get the patient off their chest and sitting in a relatively upright position or something as simple as just rolling them over on their side, right. we can save lives. And and this didn't happen for eight and a half minutes. George hey, let me ask you this, Kelly, because I think we had yeah. this we had this about uh, 10 or so years ago um, where you had patients who were on some type of narcotic or some type of uh, recreational drug, they were handcuffed, they were acting out, they were tased, it was putting them into cardiac arrest, you know, where does excited delirium come into this mix? Oh yeah, excited delirium, uh, excited delirium uh, is, is a, a huge killer, um, and the, the, the killer there is acidosis, the metabolic and the respiratory acidosis. Um, if you you can circumvent that. And the way to circumvent that is to stop the fight. Stop the fight. And if the patient is fighting uh, and police are restraining them or EMS is restraining them, number one, do the restraint in a more pro physiologically appropriate position. Put them in semi-fowlers, cross their legs, uh, one hand up, one hand down in a, in a good restraint position that denies them leverage. And and then sedate them to the eyeballs if that is in your scope of practice. Because the, the point many people miss is that your goal is to stop the fight in excited delirium. If you have physically restrained the patient, you have not stopped the fight. You've just transferred the fight from patient versus providers to patient versus restraints. They're still struggling. Their sympathetic nervous system is still ramping out of control. They are redlining their tachometer. And you're not doing anything about it. Um, you have to sedate them. You have to take them down a little bit and chemically restrain them. Um, and, and that can often be a life-saving procedure. Uh, the what what uh, agents you use to employ may depend on your pro personal protocol. A little little ketamine, a little B52, a little geodon, a little Zyprexa, whatever it is that you use uh, at your facility or agency. Chemical restraint is pretty much paramount in those patients with excited delirium while maximizing their respiratory capacity. So, you know, I think that that's, uh, you know, a great way to put, uh, you know, to kind of put a wrap on that. I do want to touch briefly. Let's go ahead and touch on your final um, section, which is the last few paragraphs of this article. And if you've not read it, I mean, if you're not a fan of Kelly Grayson and his writing, I think... One of the things that, uh, you know, Kelly and I joke a lot about uh, who's the better paramedic, which we know it's me. And uh, even though I ain't practicing anymore, I still, I think I forgot more about EMS than he ever knew. But uh, no, with all due respect, if you, if you, if you've not read his articles, really take some time to read it because, you know, he's very, very in-depth. He's very, very easy to read. Uh, and he's very, very entertaining with his articles. And uh, I think it uh, makes for really good education. Um, and I hope I said it just like you wrote it, Kelly, but, um, yeah, I did. I did checks in the mail. Okay. Thank you, sir. And, uh, but you know, you do talk about hanging ligature strangulation and manual strangulation. Uh -huh. So let's kind of just summarize these last few. What's the difference if we're, we're going to see uh, a hanging, uh, what do we expect to see? Well, with a hanging, uh, it's very similar to, to ligature strangulation. Uh, um, but you have a good deal more, uh, uh, mechanical trauma 
uh, noted notably the, the classic hangman tractor C1, C2, if there was a drop uh, there. Um, but many of the, the vascular findings that you find in, in hanging um, uh, are, the, are identical to those in uh, traumatic asphyxia. Uh, uh, blood is trapped in the head. And and the the venous vessels engorge and uh, um, and some of them burst. You see petechial hemorrhage. You see all those things. Um, you may also in a hanging see, like I said, the, the C1 C2 fracture uh, and fracture of the hyoid bone, depending on how the noose was was uh, uh, on the neck. Uh, uh, that sort of thing is is one type of, of strangulation. The other two types of strangulation are ligature and mechanical strangulation. Um, it, it, it takes a great Mechan- deal of strength. Me- mechanical or manual? Excuse me. Yeah. Um, the other two types are, are ligature or manual strangulation. And it takes a great deal of, of strength to manually strangle someone. Uh, a ligature makes it, uh, you know, gives you a mechanical advantage. Um, but, but people have been known to be manually strangled. Um, and one of the characteristics of strangulation is, is fracture of the hyoid bone. That's one of the things that medical examiners look for uh, post-mortem uh, to determine if strangulation was a mechanism is fracture of the hyoid bone. Um, now, there is vascular strangulation, uh, and usually that's more typical of the strangulation to the point of, of unconsciousness, uh, not to the point of death. Um, MMA fighters employ this sort of thing in a chokehold. Uh, basically is vascular compression of the uh, external carotids and the, the external jugular veins, uh, and the patient uh, passes out from cerebral hypoxia. And it's reversible, usually, um, and, and relatively, I'm not going to call it safe, uh, but uh, it's usually reversible. Um, uh, police officers correctly employ this uh, as a, as a um, deadly force maneuver. Um, Strangulation and chokeholds are, are still in the, the repertoire of, of police officers and should be yeah. given the appropriate uh, situation. If an officer is involved in hand-to-hand combat, he's been disarmed, he can't get to his weapon or his taser, and he's having to defend his or others' lives from a, in a physical struggle with an attacker, uh, you shouldn't limit his. You shouldn't limit his uh, his options. Uh, this is one of those things where uh, you're not employing a chokehold to to restrain someone, you're employing a chokehold to save your life, uh, which is exactly why they teach them to use their weapons. And, and it should be uh, viewed as a deadly weapon. Um, but in that in that circumstance, to save your life, well, a chokehold might be appropriate. But it is certainly not appropriate for restraining a, a, a subject, uh, particularly a non-struggling, non-combative one. Um, but... Beyond that, strangulation to the point of death usually has a mechanical component to it. It's more than vasculature. Uh, there's, there is some crush injury, edema, swelling, maybe even fracture of the trachea and larynx. Uh, there is something uh, that leaves telltale physical signs post-mortem uh, that show that there was mechanical or, or extreme manual force applied that did physical damage to those structures. And that's what you see in, in uh uh, strangulation, uh, strangulation deaths more appropriately, but you don't see it. Uh, you don't see the mechanical component as much in vascular strangulation like chokeholds, uh, but you do see it in the in the strangulation death because usually the force was either greater or kept on for longer uh, to to uh, inflict that kind of damage. Uh, 
Yeah, and one of the things just to add for chokehold is, uh, you know, we see that on M the MMA fighting all the time. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've been, uh, I trained in uh, martial arts for a lot of years. Um, and what you see on TV is a professional athlete who is being choked and how long it takes for them to eventually get to a point of either tapping out or passing out. This isn't necessarily true for the layperson who you right. you put this chokehold on because uh, you know these professional MMA fighters have good cardiovascular training, uh, they've got good endurance. But when you do this to an ordinary person and you cut off the circulation to the brain, they're going to go pretty fast too. And a lot of the yeah. a lot of the agencies have really kind of done away with that whole chokehold thing. Kudos to you for this uh, great piece of work, and uh, let's go ahead and get out of here. Yeah, and, and I'll add one thing that the, the chokehold employed by those MMA fighters uh, has a, a limit to it because there is also a professionally trained referee standing in there watching like a hawk to intervene to make sure that no permanent lasting damage is done, that there are brakes on that car, uh, and that's that referee's job. Uh, that's not something you see in a street fight and not something you see in chokeholds employed outside of the octagon. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. How many cases of restraint asphyxia have you ever dealt with in your agency? Have you seen cases of traumatic asphyxia? And how did they differ uh, in clinical presentation? Share your, your experiences with us at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Cibolero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. Catch you guys next week.